Revelation 1 verse 17. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love what S.M. Lockridge said. Death couldn't handle them and the grave couldn't hold them. That's something that we're celebrating here today. And so the only bit of liturgy that I want to go through, I want to say he is risen and I want you to repeat he is risen indeed. Can we do it? I'm going to, t- I'm going to, I'm going to give you a bit of a head start. Just do it with gusto, a bit of, bit of belief, a bit of faith. The first service was a little bit shaky. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. That's a great proclamation and declaration to ring out in this place. I want to take this morning to do something that we haven't done in a while, and I want to focus on communion. Julian gave us a beautiful picture of that prophetically in the worship as you're sharing about how we approach and receive of that which Jesus has done for us. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. I want us to just take a moment to look about how we come to the table of God to receive all that Jesus has made available in and of himself. And I want us to do that with joy and expectancy and faith alive in our hearts. So I just want to take a moment to share around this. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took up the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a phrase we hear twice in this passage. We've heard it numerous times. If you've been in and around churches, if you've been in denominational settings, you might have seen it on when you approach the altar to take communion or on standards and banners elsewhere around. And it's this encouragement that's coming from the Apostle Paul concerning Jesus on the night before he was to be crucified as something he did with his disciples. And it's an invitation that's going out that continues to us today. What amazes me, even as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, is the way that religion, when given enough time, it squeezes the life out of reality. God has made his power and his grace available to us, yet sometimes man's traditions, man's religiosities likes to cage it, box it, keep it, hide it away in a recess where something of the raw power and the purity of the goodness of God and what he's made available to us is covered over with man's fingerprints and we can't get to it. But there's something I'm wanting to remind us of that Jesus is wanting us to be in remembrance of here today, that when we come to the table, there's something of a communing with him. There's something of an interacting with him. There's something of an expectation that needs to be in our hearts to, by faith, take hold of all that he's made available. It's one thing to declare it, to sing it. It's one thing to have statements around to say he is risen. But is there faith alive in our hearts to take hold of the risen one and the life that he's making available to us? Resurrection life available to you and to me right here, right now, because of the finished work of the cross and because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. There's something about that that needs to take take a hold of our hearts. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. He wants us to remember his body. He wants us to remember his blood. But there's something deeper that he's also wanting us to be aware of. And there's two things I want to look at as we just journey towards the table. I want to look at the process of his dying. There was a process that was involved. But I want to look beyond the process to the purpose of his dying. Why did he go to the cross? Why is he 
back on the throne, seated where he has been for eternity, stepped off for a moment, and now is seated again to invite us to be seated in him in heavenly places. What was that purpose that he was doing? Because as we start off with the process of his dying, we can so easily become preoccupied with the process. We can so often look at that, and in church life, we, we look at why he died and how he died, and we get caught up there, and we never look forward to the purpose. The process is so important, because it's the process that unlocks the possibilities for the fulfillment of the purpose of why he went. That's why we, I love that statement by William Penn, who said, no pain, no palm, no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. There was a process involved to getting to his purpose. That's why he says, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that I could be seated again on the throne at the right-hand side of the Father. There was a purpose, but there was a process. And the, the challenges in human tradition, we so easily get caught up in, in the process and don't get beyond it, and it can become like a bit of a noose around our neck, suffocating and robbing life. Have you ever been in a situation that does that? I've been raised in the church. I was born into the ministry, if I can say that. Uh, my dad started the Methodist ministry the year I was born. And I remember growing up, and in those days, there were some traditions. There was a little bit of religiosity. There was a little bit of maybe legalism here and there that caused a young man like myself to suffer in his youth. Because one of the great pains that I experienced is I was not allowed to go and watch the Smurfs. The Smurfs was a no-go area for a young Christian boy. They were blue, they were little, there was a wizard called Go, whatever his name was in it. And so I experienced the pain through legalism, not getting to watch the Smurfs. What's happened now in grace is in this last week, I experienced another sort of pain. It was an enduring sort of pain because I was able to go and watch Smurfs 2 with my son. And let me tell you, that was an incredibly painful experience. If you speak to Barbara Jennings, she will tell you that when she was growing up with a little bit of legalism, she found and she experienced that she wasn't able to go to a movie house. And so one day she snuck out and she was in her late teens, early 20s, went to the movie house. She sat as far forward as she could. She didn't want to be under the balcony because if by some chance the balcony collapsed on her, a good Christian in a place that she couldn't go, she might go straight to hell. And so... <laughs> That's, that's a true story. And so that, that was something that she couldn't do. But many of us are, are brought up with this sort of sense. You know, we, 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 we held back because of we're afraid of religiosity and legalism's traditions. I, I was at a boarding school and I was the, the head of chapel at Kersney College. And uh, I remember when it would come to the time of communion. You know, where, where guys, and maybe you've experienced this, there's a, a sense of trepidation in coming to the table. There's the sense that, you know, I better confess carefully everything I need to confess because I don't want to be judged and to be found guilty of violating the blood of Jesus. So I need to come carefully to the table. The problem was, as I was officiating with the reverend the, the, the breaking of bread and giving the wafer and giving the cup that represents the blood. These Kersney boys had just come back from their weekend. It was the Sunday night chapel service. And you could never repent enough in just a few moments of hearing that communion is coming. You need weeks and weeks to do that. And so these first team rugby players, their eyes would be big and they would be intimidated because of the table. 
There was the sense of trepidation. There was the sense of, you know, I'm not good enough. Others come and there's the sincerity. They come and there's a, it's a heavy atmosphere. It's a somber atmosphere. And they think they must come and they make themselves as small as they can be as they approach the table. There's these various ways we approach. We need to examine ourselves, it says. But what do we examine ourselves for? Is when, it's, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, is that meant to provoke a fear in us and I must examine myself in fear in my approach? Or is it meant to provoke a faith, a joy, an expectancy that I examine myself to see if that's alive in me as I pro- approach the table to participate in everything he's made available? How are you going to approach this Resurrection Sunday to take hold of all that Jesus has made available to you and to me. Just a bit of a background. Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. He started off in chapter one by commending them. He's commended them on their, their freedom and the gifts of the Spirit and how they flow. But he's come to a plot where he's challenging them. He's using strong words. In chapter 11, verse 17 to 19, he says, I'm not going to praise you for what you've done with the Lord's table. You know, he's probably part of the problem in some degree because he's obviously created an expectation in them that they can come to celebrate. This is a joyous table. This is a triumphant table. And he's led them for about 18 months. He's been leading that church, but he's been away for about five and a half years. And he's writing to them because he's heard what's happening. They've started to come and they're celebrating, but it's all about themselves. They're feeding themselves to their fill without sharing with others. They're getting drunk. They're doing all of these things. And Paul is writing to them, and let me say, if he hadn't created the expectancy that it's a place of celebration, I don't think they would have got to here. But he's writing, he's saying, what are you celebrating? You've taken the celebration into your own provision, your own strength, your own control, rather than coming and celebrating with the excessive abundance of the supply of what I've made available to you in and of myself. It's not eating till you're full and drinking till you're drunk. It's partaking of what I'm going to fill you with my nourishment and my strength ongoingly and of my blood which washes you, cleanses you, and and causes you to be a new creation. Why does snow? And so he's challenging them. He's saying, where are you in this? Because in the midst of this unruly feast, he's saying you're missing the key thing. And there's some words we see that jump out to us that I want us to look at just before we also partake. And the first word is worthily. He speaks of partaking in a worthy manner, not partaking of an unworthy manner. What is he talking about? You see, one interpretation would mean I've got to make sure that I'm worthy. I've got to stir up, I've got to muster up, I've got to whip up all my worthiness. I've got to make sure I'm good enough, that I've done enough, that I've been enough, that I've achieved enough. I need to make sure that I'm in that place when I come to the table. That places a huge pressure on ourselves. That's not what he's saying when he says we ought to examine ourselves. That word examine means to test, to test oneself, passing a test. What is the Lord testing? Is he testing how perfect we are? Is he testing how deserving we are of his grace? Or is he testing that we understand, we recognize, we have faith and we believe in everything that he has made available to us in and of himself as we approach the table? What is he testing to see? Have you done it? Or is he testing to see, are you in faith that he's done it on your behalf and mine? What's he examining? And are we passing that test? Because we need to be coming today 
remembering what was accomplished at the cross, what's accomplished with him seated on the throne, so that we can partake of everything that's available to us right here, right now, because of the resurrection life that we have available to us. We need to examine ourselves and see, are we in faith? Are we taking hold of that? The test isn't to see if we deserve it. You know, there's some churches that believe, and I'm not having a go at churches, not naming churches, but just generally in the body of Christ, there is the thought pattern among some that if someone is divorced, they can never take communion again. That is a crazy thought to me, that if someone is weak, they cannot come to the table to receive the strength of what the Lord's made available to them. That is like saying to someone dying of malnutrition, you need to get better first and then you can come and eat. It's a crazy thought. It goes against everything I know of who Jesus is because he's not trying to cause us to observe a ritual. He's trying to get us to come to a place where we can receive the grace that he has made available in and of himself. That's why he came down from the throne. That's why he took up inhabitation amongst us. That's why he let the destitute, the outcast, the broken, the needy, the unclean, those that no one else would touch or speak to, he let them come to him. Why would he suddenly say, I'm holding you at arm's length, you're not good enough, when he came to say, I am the one who is making you worthy. He's saying, come and partake, come and receive life. The very purpose of the table is to minister strength to you where you don't have it, to minister grace to you where you cannot achieve it, to minister love to you where you felt so distant and un unloved. That is the beauty. It is one of the greatest expressions of the love of God in Christ Jesus to you and me that we get to participate in. It's not just a symbol, it's a reality, spiritual reality. And so how are we approaching? We do need to examine ourselves. It would be crazy of me to come to the fullness of what's on offer in terms of who Jesus is and what he's done and to think, no, I don't need anything. I need to examine myself and say, Lord, you know, I, I seem to not be living true to the identity you say of me. I seem to be thinking in old patterns. I seem to be behaving in old ways. I seem to be held in bondage by things that you have broken me free of. And so I'm coming to your table and I'm saying, Lord, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your love. I need your empowerment. I need your life to infuse my life so my life can start to look like your life. It's where we come to a place and think I'm not just going to ingest some symbols physically and feel full because I've satisfied some legal requirement. But I'm going to digest something of a spiritual reality that sets me into a freedom and a liberty that in my life I'm starting to be transformed to look like the one whose life fills mine. Come on. Come on. So let me ask a question. Because I know that there would be some who would be saying, no, no, we need to be worthy in our approach. Let me ask this question. Who is worthy to come to the table? Because I've settled it in my heart. There's nothing I can do. Nothing I can ever achieve. Nothing I can work up, muster up, whip up. There's nothing I can ever do that'll be worthy of what he did for me on the cross. There's nothing I can ever do that would be that beautiful and that powerful and that life-changing and history-shaping and cosmic reordering is what Jesus did on the cross. Who is worthy to come to the table? None of us are. 
But Jesus died to shower us with his grace so that we get to come through him, the one who is worthy, to receive all that he's made available. I come by putting my trust and my faith in the lamb, the lamb who is worthy, who takes away the sin of the world, including the sin of George Gurley, so that I can partake in the strength, the life, the grace, the beauty, the love, the fullness of the mercy and the goodness of the character and the nature of the one who fills all things with the fullness of who he is. So there's a purpose beyond the process. We read in the sixth chapter of John, the practice of the Lord's table. He says, unless we eat the flesh of the Son, and man, of, the Son of Man and drink his blood, we have no part in him. I mean, the disciples were bewildered. They were thinking, this guy's gone a bit crazy. He's speaking about cannibalism here. What is he talking about? But Jesus was foreseeing a moment, a moment that we are now in, where we get to partake of his life, where we get to partake of his body, where we get to partake of his blood, and we get to do it with understanding. No longer are we seeing it as cannibalism, but now we are seeing it as the very source of life that enables us to live in the fullness of life. How do we partake in a worthy manner? I'll tell you how we do. We partake in a worthy manner by ascribing worth to the one who has done it all and receiving that which he has done. It's by placing faith in the one who has done it. We, we recognize his worthiness, which makes us able to approach it in a worthy manner. That's how we examine ourselves. That's how we examine if there's faith alive in our hearts. That's how we approach the table. There's another verse that speaks to us today as well where it says, if you partake recklessly, you may get sick. Why does it say that? I want to suggest that one of the reasons that it's saying that is because people come and there's no faith alive in their hearts to take hold of what's available to them in the approach. It's like saying, I'm going to come and you go through the emotions and, and you, you take of the table and maybe you're doing it very sincerely, but you're doing it and you're only coming and not expecting anything of God's grace, His goodness, His strength, His healing power to be at work in you. So there's limited power available to you because you're not realizing as in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that it's foretelling that that it's by his wounds you will be healed. And you're not realizing that 1 Peter 2 verse 24 that says that by his wounds you have been healed. And so you're not understanding, examining, discerning, taking hold of that which is available to you. You're not receiving the fullness of it. And so you're not taking hold of the life that's yours. One way would to be discern it is to say, Lord, in my body, I'm needing a, your healing touch. I recognize what you did. I recognize that by your stripes I am healed. I recognize that by your blood I have been washed clean. And so, Lord, I'm coming to your table and I'm coming to receive that, to engage with that, that faith would appropriate that, that I'd see the outworking of that in my life right now, right here, because you are the resurrected king seated on the throne and you're wanting to administer and disperse that which you've made available to us. You see, it's faith that appropriates the power. There's no power in and of itself in the sacraments. It's faith that appropriates it. How are you approaching the table? How, how am I going to approach the table of what he's done? And as we do that, there's two things in remembering I just want to end with. Two possibilities. There's two ways to think of it. You know, we can approach with the sense that, as I say, where it's all about the process, and we can think he is wanting us to remember this when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's wanting me to remember the nails. 
He's wanting me to remember the crown of thorns. He's wanting me to remember the spear. He's wanting me to remember how much it hurt him. He's wanting me to remember that I'm guilty. You know, that's one way we can think he is telling us to remember. But I want to suggest another way. I want to suggest that he is wanting you to remember every time you take the bread, every time you take the cup, that his blood was shed for you, and it's a once and for all shedding of his blood to cover all your sins so that you can live with no condemnation. I'm wanting to suggest to you that he wants you to remember when you come to the table and you might be sick and afflicted, that it's by his stripes that you are healed. He is your healer, and you can receive healing. I'm wanting to suggest that when you feel plagued by the enemy, when you feel held in bondage, that he is the one that has overcome the enemy at the cross. He abolished its power, the principalities. He abolished anything that could be operative. He made an open spectacle of them so that you and I can receive the fullness of life that is available to us. I want to suggest that this is what he wants us to remember, that he is a mighty savior who has washed us, cleansed us, provided us with strength and healing and everything we need for life and godliness so that we can live victoriously in the one who has overcome and who is the champion seated on the throne. I'm wanting, you, I'm wanting to suggest that there's meant to be an expectation, a celebration, a faith alive in us when we approach the table, and it's not meant to be a somber, defeated approach, beggingly to the table, to that which he has said, come and partake, come and participate in, come and engage in, come and be involved in, come and get into that which I've made available to you, come boldly, because I've given it boldly, I've done it for everyone to see, I made an open spectacle of the enemy, and a spectacle of myself that I wasn't ashamed for, because there was a joy in my heart that I was doing. So I despised the shame of the cross, but I took joy in being seated on the throne and saying, even as you are co-crucified with me, co-buried with me, you can be co-raised with me, co-seated with me, so you can have communion with me and partake of my life. Come and partake. Because this is a table of provision. This is a table where there's abundance. There's a table where there's excess. I want to say that Paul would have had no problem if they were, if they were overindulging, if they were getting excessively intoxicated with who Jesus was when they came to the table. His problem was that they were getting caught up in the physical and what they were ingesting, and that's got no benefit. But he is saying if you were digesting the spiritual life that is available to you in and of me, you can never have enough because there's always more of his abundant supply. Man, I'm enjoying this Easter message. I feel as happy as happy can be. And I'm ready for communion. I want to pray. I want to encourage you as you come to partake, let us rejoice in the risen Lord, seated on the throne. To him be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And let's partake of all that he is. Let's pray. Can I ask you to bow your heads just for a moment? I don't want us to profess something we don't possess. I don't want us to profess something we don't possess. Let me explain that for a second. We need to know what we have by faith to declare it. And there might be some of us here today who've never given our lives to Jesus. I want to invite you to the table in faith. 
I want you to know that you have a, relation with, a relationship with him so you can receive all that he's made available to you in and of himself. So before you come to the table, I want to ask this question of you. If there's anyone here, I'm inviting everyone to the table. So if there's anyone here who hasn't yet given their life to Jesus, who's heard about this and thinking, Lord, I want to, I want to partake of all that you've done. I want to ask you just to raise your hand for a moment while every eye is closed. I just want to be in agreement with you so that I can... Uh, just be in faith with you as you do that. Is there anyone here that has never given their life to the Lord? I want to give you just a moment to raise your hand. We had two people in the first service. Anyone here? Okay. No one here, so I'm trusting we all get to come and partake. So, Lord, we're just so grateful. We are so thankful. Lord, there's such a celebration, such a joy in our hearts that we get to come to the table of triumph. We get to come remembering why you came, Lord, the process but the purpose. We get to come to participate, partake, engage in all that you've made available. Lord, we come because we want your life. We're wanting you to sustain us. We come because we are wanting more of your grace to be outworked in us and through us. We come because we're wanting to digest something of who you are, that it transforms us so that we represent, and Lord, that we are the picture of who you are. We are in your likeness. We want your life to be in our life. And so, Lord, we thank you for the table. We thank you for your body that was given for us. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us. And I pray, Lord, the fill out working for everyone that comes in faith to encounter you afresh at your table today, where we come face to face with the face of God, even as that as that means, the table of your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.